The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. This is me. Each of these is a biomarker from either my blood or my stool that I have taken over the last 10 years. Each dot here represents a separate blood test or or stool test, and then I get the numbers back, I put them in a spreadsheet, and then they uh, put them in a database, and, and then all these things are graphed. And as you, the reason for this is because um, the body is a dynamic system, and the problem with the way we do medicine today is the doctor once in a while will say, oh, well, let's get some tests on that, and they'll get this one time value. But what is your fluctuation for any of these things. So, for instance, if you took, like, the eosinophils, if I happen to go to the doctor that day, I'm in the green. Now, the green is um, between the upper and, and the lower limit for healthy. And they'd say, oh, we're just fine. But if I'd gone on that day, that's in the yellow, and the yellow is one to ten times the upper limit for healthy. Well, which is it? Well, it's in each of us. All of those, because you fluctuate, just like, you know, if, if you happen to uh, take your temperature on a day you got the flu, you'd find out it was 103 or something, and if you took it most other days, it would be 98.6. So, as dynamic entities, we change with time, and what I wanted to do was to capture that across all of these. Now, at the time I started this, I didn't think that I was anything but healthy. I didn't have any particular symptoms, and actually I was trying to figure out uh, how to track changes in supplements I was taking. I was taking more omega-3s, and I wanted to say, well, if I'm really doing a good job, I want to measure in my blood the ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s, that's anti-inflammatory to inflammatory uh, fatty, uh, long-chain fatty acids, but the doctor wouldn't give me the test because They'd said, you don't have a disease, so why we don't have a code for it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, this is to make me stay healthy. Yeah, we don't do that. Uh, so, um, so I just started doing it myself. And uh, when I could, i get the UCSD Health to uh, take the numbers. And when I need it, i go to the web and get a test and go down and uh, get it done myself. So this is actually very unusual. There's, there's hardly any... A thing like this in the literature on humans. Um, even, I would say, not so much on even mice. Uh, and what you can see is that a lot of the things are completely green. So even though there's fluctuations, they stay within the healthy. And that's like your temperature goes up a little, down a little, up a little, but it's roughly in the healthy range, right? That's okay. But I started seeing something very strange. In my high-sensitivity CRP, now CRP is complex reactive protein, and that is a standard medical test for whether you are in a state of inflammation, and it's a blood test. Well, it's supposed to be less than one, and you can see that doesn't even show up on here. That's down at the very bottom. I'm at least always in the one to ten times higher than I should be, or in the orange, which is ten to a hundred times higher. 
And so I'm seeing myself here at 5, 10, 15 over just a short period of time back in this is 2008. So this goes from 2007 till today in 2018. And so I went into the doctor and I said, something is going wrong inside of me. I mean, I, there's some source for this inflammation, right? And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's rising, you know, really fast. So we better get on top of that. And they said, oh, yeah, so um, uh, how do you feel? I, you know, it's like, well, what has that got to do with it? <laughs> and they said, well, why are you here? I said, because I've got data. They said, yeah, I'm a doctor. So, like, why are you here if you don't have a symptom? Come back when you have a symptom. Well, shortly after this spike, about two weeks later, I ended up with the sharpest pain in my lower abdomen in my entire life. I was doubled over, and I came into the, I was on a trip, actually, and I finally got back, and I went to the hospital, and I went to my doctor, and I said, oh, God, you're going to love this. I've got a symptom. Now, it was completely predictable, but that's not the way the system evidently works. So that really got my attention, and I said, I don't know what this is, and they gave me antibiotics for 10 days, and they said, see, it dropped. I said, uh, that's five. That's not one. <laughs> That's five times higher. Now, to put that in perspective, you say, well, some people run higher, right? Well, yeah, if you run at a CRP of five, you quadruple your future chance of cardiovascular disease. It's not okay. And so then it went along in 2009, 10, 11, and it's now up to 27. And so then I knew something was really going wrong. And I had back in 2008... After I figured out this CRP, I was wondering, well, I wonder if, there, if there's inflammation, if there's anything going on with my immune system. And I realized that my large intestine is your largest immune organ. And so I realized that if I did stool samples, they should be able to look directly at the front lines of my immunity. And when I got that, it was quite a wake-up call because... I found out that my lysozyme, which is um, a point defense on the colon wall against gram-positive bacteria, so it's a protein that, that drills holes in the sides of bacteria it doesn't like, and they kill them. Well, it was, again, almost always in the 1 to 10 times above healthy. So that's your, what you call your innate immune system. And then my secretory IgA, which is the most common antibody, in your gut is really spiking high over and over again. So then that was another clue. That's your adaptive immune system. So the innate immune system, the adaptive immune system are both episodically flaring. Episodically flaring. So it wasn't like it was a constant thing, but it was spiking up and spiking up and spiking down and spiking up and spiking down. And I thought, okay, that's crazy. What's going on? But then there's a third part of your immune system, which is the white blood cells, and particularly the white blood cells that are called neutrophils that are your killer white blood cells. And when those go after something in your uh, intestine, they uh, shed from their surface proteins that are called lactoferrin all the way into the purple, which is now not just one to ten times it's over 100 times greater than healthy. 
and calprotectin, which is at this spike was 50 times. And so I went into the medical literature, the published literature, and I looked up research articles on calprotectin and lactoferrin. And it turns out that these are the sensitive and specific biomarkers that are used to tell if you have inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune disease, one of 80 autoimmune diseases that the National Institutes of Health recognizes. And so I said, I see. <laughs> How, you know, this is, I'm 69 now, so that was a few years ago, so I'm in my 60s, and I didn't know I had this disease. I'd never had any discussion with a doctor or anything about this. Of course, they'd never done these tests. Um, and because stool tests are something that, by and large, for some reason, is not normally um, done. So I had a hypothesis that the source of the inflammation was inflammatory bowel disease. <laughs> and, and that made sense, and these certainly meet with the, the, um, what the literature says, although, again, you don't see these kind of um, charts uh, in, the, in the literature. So I went to my doctor at that time and said, um, I think I've got IBD, and he had just done a colonoscopy. He was a veteran uh, of, of colonoscopies, and he said, you don't have IBD. If you did, I would have told you. And I showed him these charts and everything, and he says, why are you doing this? <laughs> so fortunately, at that moment, this was 2011, Dr. Bill Sanborn, who had been 20 years at the Mayo Clinic, transferred to UC San Diego to become our chief of gastroenterology. And I basically called him up and said, hi, I need to be your patient and you need to be my doctor because I'm going to have great data for you. Um, and uh, he was nice enough to um, put up with me, and, which takes a certain doing, you know, for a doctor. And so sure enough, we then did an MRI and found out that I had thickening in a portion of my colon which is characteristic of Crohn's disease, which is one of the subkinds of uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And so that is how I diagnosed myself and then worked with the medical establishment once I had a hypothesis, not a symptom yet, that that was the case. Uh, there's a lot of other stories, though, when you look at this. You'll notice, for instance, up here, my fasting glucose, it was just bouncing back and forth and back and forth, but around, say, 90, which is perfectly reasonable for fasting glucose. But starting about 2013, it started moving up and up and up and up. And in fact, uh, it peaked at 119, which is if you're over 120, you have active type 2 diabetes. <laughs> so that's become a real focus for me. And so I'm now involved just because of that, more than anything else. I went over and volunteered to be in a clinical trial for um, doing 14 hours of fasting a day for 100 days and to see if that would reduce fasting uh, glucose and insulin. It seems to be doing it, but we'll know um, when I finish at the end of this month in January of 2018. But anyway, there's a lot of stories like this, and, and I think it's, a, it's really a, a glimpse into the future of personalized medicine. Of course, these tests have to get much cheaper, but they are. That, you know, I just 
in the time I've been going over and doing, say, a quarterly set of blood draws in which I get 20 vials of blood just to get data for my charts, <laughs> um, they've gone from needing 20 tubes to maybe eight tubes. And that's just in a couple of years. And it's doing as many or even more tests. So I think these are going to get to the point that over the next five to ten years, this will be, um, you know, at your drugstore or, or at Walmart or places like that, uh, where you can go in, it'll stick you, and then, you know, come up with all these charts. And what it's good for is, look at all these charts. This is 70 different um, variables. But you can instantly just look and say, okay, that one's wrong, that one's wrong, that one's wrong, that one's wrong, that one's wrong. And you immediately say, for this individual, you have an inflammatory immune system problem. But for somebody else, it might be type 2 diabetes about to happen. It could be uh, cardiovascular risk and so forth. So it's a survey across this whole universe of of things. It's not that you wait until you're broken and you have a symptom. It's to do preventative, predictive health care. Because if you get it early enough and then you can make a small intervention, you may not develop the full version, which is what is, after all, costing all the money in the health care system. When I looked at all those biomarkers, there were five associated with uh, inflammation and with immunity that were way out of healthy range. So we've grabbed those five and we plotted them with different colors. And so the blood uh, variable, the CRP is in blue. And then the other ones are from the stool. That's the calprotectin and lactoferrin, which the white blood cells are shedding as antimicrobials. And then there's the lysozyme, uh, the innate immune system, and then the orange is the Uh, secretory IgA, which is your most common antibody. Now, the first thing you notice when you look at this is that they aren't in phase. So sometimes, like, the orange one will go up and the others are just fine. And that's because each of the components of your immune system has a different function. And so, for instance, the lysozyme only goes after gram-positive bacteria that they don't think should be in your colon. Well, if they're not there, it won't come out. And so you're beginning to see the specialization of the immune system in a very nice way. And below it are uh, over time, and by the way, that's 2008 at that end, and basically uh, January 2018 at that end, so a full decade. So for each of these years, like from 2012 to 2013, I went back into my symptom diary. So Ever since uh, 2009, I've been uh, every day writing down whether something is right or wrong with my body. Uh, So if I decided to then take those and put them into weekly uh, buckets, because then that gives me 52 data points a year. And so the width of each of these is one week. If it's white, that means I didn't have that symptom. And then if it's very light, that might be a one, this is a zero with no, nothing. But if it's really dark, that might be a five, so that's the worst. So I sort of tried to do a quantitative estimate of how bad the symptom was. And I didn't presuppose what the symptoms were. I actually discovered that, 
and I've classed them here. So this is uh, basically rectal bleeding. This is flaring, like very large barely and lots of problems. Uh, oddly enough, this one is malaise. Now, why would you think there'd be changes in your mood? Well, you know that mood-altering compounds uh, like Prozac and all the derivatives of that uh, affect the serotonin and dopamine neurotransmitters. And everybody thinks those are in their head. Actually, 85% of those neurotransmitters for serotonin and dopamine are in your large intestine and in intimate contact with the microbiome and the immune system. So you could very well imagine if there's a problem with a change in your microbiome's ecology, you might have changes in your mood. And sure enough, uh, like, you know, really dark is, like here maybe, is I couldn't get out of bed all day because I was so depressed. Not that there was anything wrong in my life other than my microbiome. (laughs) Um, But I wasn't trying to prejudge any of this. Uh, These are what I call peripheral. So although there are 80 autoimmune diseases, the human genetic predisposition for them actually has a lot of overlap. And so, for instance, I'll sometimes get an attack of essentially what's arthritis in my hands, or I'll get burning in my eyes, or I'll get... Uh, skin blood blisters, basically, that form for no reason. So I don't try to understand why that is. I'm just trying to scientifically report it and then look at it over time. So these are all peripheral. And then these are just, uh, the green ones are just have a cold. (laughs) Well, maybe you have a cold or not. A cold is when you get all congested. That's your immune system doing something. Well, maybe it's doing something because there's a virus or a bacteria, or maybe it's doing something because it's coupled to your immune system down in your colon. So I don't know, so I'm just keeping track of that. Then I occasionally have been on pharmaceuticals. So this row here is antibiotics. So for instance, this this dark blue here uh, in early 2012 was when my doctor put me on uh, Cipro and Flagyl every day for a month. And also prednisone as an immunosuppressant, uh, which is the purple. And so this row is immunosuppressants. This one is anti-inflammatory, which over here in the green I was on for about three months. Um, And then down at the bottom is when I took frozen stool samples, so stool sample in the morning and then freeze it, and then that we can then genetically uh, sequence to figure out what is the state of the microbiome and correlate that with my symptoms and with my biomarkers, not just these five, but any of the 150 or so that I track. I just showed 70, the ones that I have the most data for. Now, this is a lot of data, but you can see some things right away. So I remember when my doctor said, we're going to put you on antibiotics for a month along with prednisone. Um, I said, isn't that a little heavy duty? He says, yeah, it's sort of like the nuclear option but we do that before we're going to try biologics on you. Well, how did that work? So if we put the cursor over here on just the end of that period, so this is the yellow line now shows before and after. And the question is, from the point of view of either my symptoms or from the excursions of my immune system, did that 
stop anything. I mean, I'm just as bad before as I was after, if not more so. Um, but I know that, but the doctor doesn't know it because the methodology is not, in the medical community, is not to do these longitudinal time series like this and compare it. So normally, scientifically what you do is before you do it, you get all the measurements, all the biomarkers. Then you do a time series afterwards to figure out whether or not uh, it changed anything. Now they do, you know, maybe six months or something like that, but not this kind of detailed work. Um, the second thing is, you know, when you go into the doctor and they say, how are you feeling? The idea is that you are able, through your, your brain, to intuit the state of your immune system. Well, let's see how well that works. So, you know, if you take, oh, uh, say we come over here to where the big purple one is. Okay, you can see that it's the highest it ever got for the lysozyme. But notice that essentially there's nothing going on. There's a very weak, moderate flare that week, but, but you, you know, basically wouldn't notice it. And yet that's the highest it's ever been. Uh, and if you come over to another one, say, let's come over here to um, uh, where, well, I don't know. Say, well, where they're all going up. Let, let, yeah, say, say, yeah, like, like there. Uh, there you can see they're all pretty much down. There's nothing going on. If you come over to, I don't know, there, or yeah, let's come over there, right, to that peak where the uh, orange is peaked. It actually, nothing, 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 nothing. And yet, you have this huge peak. So, the conclusion is that by having these finely time series, time, these longitudinal time series, you can show that you cannot intuit whether or not you are in a state of extreme uh, immune reaction. And I think that's really important because if the methodology is to ask you how you feel, that's not going to necessarily tell you you've got a problem. Um, so that's just the kind of thing you can begin to get out of this. Uh, the other thing uh, I would say is uh, you'll notice that over here there's finally a really big spike, uh, and that is the uh, day of my surgery. And that's when I had this part of my colon that has been uh, driving all this inflammation surgically removed, robotically. Well, after that, things are almost flat. So effectively, what that says is I had a point driver of inflammation, which is what I said back in 2008, <laughs> but I couldn't get anybody's attention on it. Um, and so, you know, basically eight years later, <laughs> Uh, we actually were removed that, and then basically all of my immune markers and inflammation have just been normal ever since. And in fact, the difference between um, the highest value uh, in green of my lactoferrin over there and my current values, it's 2,000 times lower. Now, unfortunately, an awful lot of people who suffer with inflammatory bowel disease have a more pervasive manifestation of it, and just surgically removing six inches of your colon isn't going to solve it.
But in my particular case, and for there is a certain class of folks who have colonic Crohn's, um, this is at least uh, evidence that it might be a, a good remedy. Now the question is, why are these immune variables all uh, out of control? And as I said, we know some of them, like lactoferrin and calprotectin, are antimicrobial. So I begin to then take stool samples. These are the green bars down here. At first, every two or three months, then monthly, and then over here about every two weeks. And uh, that's just by taking a stool sample and then freezing it, sending it over to Rob Knight's lab uh, here at UC San Diego, his Center for Microbiome Innovation. And then he puts it through the genome sequencing. We then take that data, put it through the supercomputer, and what comes back is a profile of the ecology of the microbes, but also we're able to look at it over time. And so this year, in 2018, we're going to be looking at what are now a couple of hundred of these stool samples compared to at least a hundred of these biomarker time series to see if there's actually causal relationships between shifts in the ecology profile and, um, and the biomarkers, which will be really important for medicine since today medicine does not include anything about the microbiome state or its dynamics. This is uh, the work that we've done uh, with the supercomputer. This took about, um, if you ran your computer uh, for an hour on the calculations, now imagine running it for 24 hours. Now imagine running it for a week, 24 hours a day. Now imagine running it all year for 24 hours a day. Now imagine running it for 25 years all day. That's the amount of computing time it took to get this uh, on the San Diego Supercomputer Center. So uh, what it amounts to is from the microbiome uh, sequencing, we're able to re to, to compare that with all the genomes that are known of, of bacteria, and you get a relative abundance vertically for each species. So each bar is a species. Um, and so, for instance, way over here is E. coli, which people have heard of at least. But these are all inside healthy people. So the way we did this is the National Institutes of Health had a human microbiome project, and they had about 255 people. They went through and took stool samples, uh, as well as from other parts of the body, did exactly this process. We downloaded all those raw genetic reads, reran them through our software with a supercomputer, and then this is an average across the 255 people. Now, the cool thing is that this is on a log scale. So that at the top, 0.1 is 10%. 0.01 is 1%. 0.001 is a tenth of a percent. So what you can see is it falls off very quickly in terms of the amount of any one of these. Um, so there are more and more rarer and rarer bacteria. And you might think, who cares uh, um, uh, about the weeds, essentially, in your ecology? Remember, this is an ecology. Now, we've color-coded it by what are called phyla. These are the largest divisions of biological life. 
When we as humans, macro objects, think of biodiversity, we think, well, there's a blue whale and, and there's a canary uh, and there's a snake and, uh, you know, orangutan and rhinos and humans. But actually, all of those are vertebrae. And the vertebrae are a subphylum of chordata, things that have a spinal cord. And so there are these different phylums like insects and mollusks and um, uh, jellyfish and so forth, coral. And in the bacterial world, it's the same way. The red is what is called the bacteriotes. The blue is what are called the firmicutes. And then the purple are the proteobacteria, including E. coli, and the orange are actinobacteria. But you can see, remember it's a log scale, normally about 95% of your microbes are in one of these two red or blue families. Now, as I say, who cares about the weeds? Well, let's go all the way down here to maybe this guy, uh, which is about uh, two one-hundredths of a percent. That's Clostridium difficile, C. diff, that kills 15, 20,000 Americans every year. Mostly, they acquire it while in a hospital because the massive amounts of antibiotics kill off all these good guys who are supposed to keep the weeds down. And so just after a forest fire, you see all this weeds and brush and everything coming up. The seeds were always there. They were just suppressed because there was no sunlight. So the same thing, antibiotics can do its damage to your microbiome while doing the good it's doing otherwise by killing off these more abundant things. That would be the first thing to go. Then there's opportunistic weed growth, if you like, microbes that are rare, but then they become dominant. And then this causes you know diarrhea 10 times a day or something like that, and it can kill you if it's not treated. And unfortunately, some of those... Uh, have strains that are antibiotic resistant. So I think we're going to need to know all of these. It turns out that about, oh, 85% of these bugs don't grow in a Petri dish because they don't grow in the presence of oxygen. So you imagine your colon is a long way from the air, and so evolutionarily most of the bugs that are there, most of the microbes, have adapted to not having oxygen. So if you take them out and put them in a Petri dish, they die because they're in the presence of oxygen. So actually, the history of microbiology has been growing things in Petri dishes, and so we don't know the function or even really what these guys are there for for almost all of them. But we're going to have to know because they're in all of us. They each have, you know, the microbiome does vitamin synthesis, and it, it, it ferments the plant fiber that you eat to make the most essential energy source actually for your human uh, cells that line your colon. And so it's a kind of a symbiotic, symbiotic thing. But they also have long-range effects on your brain. They may, changes in the microbiome psychology may precede uh, many of the neurodegenerative diseases, for instance. Um, so we're just beginning to learn about this. Why is it that we're just beginning to know it? Well, like I say, it took us 25 CPU years on the supercomputer today, or a few years ago, to do this. Um, it's the you know, the, when I started this, remember 10 years ago, it was probably a million times more expensive to do the sequencing than it is now. A million times. Same thing with the supercomputing. 
So as we ride down the exponential, like Moore's Law kind of thing, it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to do the sequencing. By the sequencing, you know who's there. So we just couldn't know before. But now we're in this magic moment in time where all of this is going to become clear. So the medicine of five to ten years from now, I think it's going to be dramatically better because we're going to be looking at the entire body. These guys here, there are 40 trillion of their cells in your body. It's ten times as many cells as have DNA, each of these have DNA, in your human body. Ten times as many microbe cells with DNA as you have human cells with DNA. And most of the genes, because these are so diverse in their, in their DNA, most of the genes, 99% at least, of the genes on the DNA in your body are in the microbes, not the human, and therefore outside of medicine as we know it today. I imagine adding it in and what that will do to revolutionize medicine. So I'm so excited about this. Well, the first thing we wanted to know is, is there a difference um, between the microbiome in a healthy case and, say, someone with IBD? Well, it was fortunate that we had a few people that had uh, ileal Crohn's, that's Crohn's that ends in the small intestine, and ulcerative colitis that we could compare. So let's bring up those and compare them. Now, for each of these, we're using the same scale, uh, logarithmic scale vertically. What you can see right away is if you go up to the bacteriotes, which is the dominant, uh, and I should say this is using full what we call shotgun sequencing and not uh, 16S, uh, which is much uh, simpler. Bacteriotes are about 77% of all your bugs. But look down in iliocrones at the bottom. It's 1.5%. That means there's a 50-fold reduction in the most abundant set of microbes that you have. And these microbes, as I say, are all providing, if it's an ecology, they're providing ecological services. Just like the big mudslides we saw recently in, in uh, north of Los Angeles after the big fires, well, that's because the ecological services of slowing down the rainwater weren't there once they were gone away. Well, this is like a forest fire. I mean, it's like, you know, it was an oak forest, then there was a forest fire, no more oak trees. Lots of other kind of trees, see, but not the ones that were helping your body. So and I think it will turn out to be that for many of these diseases in which you have this kind of very large shift of the microbiome, it'll be the shift in the microbiome, which is why you have the disease fundamentally. I mean, it, it's caused by the fact you have a human uh, difference in your DNA on certain aspects of your uh, immune proteins or control regions, but it carries out and develops in changes in the microbiome, which then couple to all the rest of your body, including your brain. But now notice that if we looked at the difference between, say, ulcerative colitis, the second row, and ileal Crohn's, that that the proteobacteria here and the proteobacteria in healthy for ileal Crohn's and healthy are about the same. But what about in ulcerative colitis? In ulcerative colitis, the E. coli is about a hundred times more uh, numerous than what you see. So it's a third of all your bacteria, <laughs> right? And yet it's quite different in this form of IBD from healthy. So. So there's a chance, and it's not, we don't have enough data yet to do this, but there may be 
a non-invasive diagnostic that will help determine your state. Now, since, say, part of the therapy, as we saw earlier, was antibiotics, where you are on a therapeutic regimen may have as much to do with the shift in the microbiome as the disease itself. That's the sort of thing we're going to sort out. So coming back to Bill Sanborn, who's the head of GI and, and, uh, here at UC San Diego uh, in the uh, health sciences, um, he set up a biobank, and we now have uh, several hundred samples from his patients that are very carefully uh, described in the medical literature, you know, in, in phenotyped, basically. You know, what's their age, sex, when do they have first onset, what drugs have they been on, what surgeries have they have. Well, Rob Knight's lab has now sequenced all of those. So instead of we had about half a dozen ulcerative colitis and 15 or something uh, iliocrones, that was just to see if there was an effect. But now we know there is. Now we're going to look at hundreds, and that'll be in 2018 that we'll be figuring that out. Well, let's put me up as long as we're at it. And I suspected that I was somewhere in between ulcerative colitis and iliocrones. Why? Well, ulcerative colitis is a disease that is just localized in the large intestine. So was mine. Iliocrones can actually be anywhere in your GI tract. Um, and, and so that's a more general problem. It's uh, focused on the on the end of the small intestine. And sure enough, you can see that that the bottom row, that's me, uh, I'm in between the bacteriotis, the red. I'm not as low as iliocrones. I'm not as high as ulcerative colitis. I'm in between. If I look over here, uh, I'm higher in my proteobacteria in purple than uh, the iliocrones, but not as high as ulcerative colitis. And we didn't talk about the actinobacteria, which really take over in the iliocrones. But you can see, again, uh, I'm somewhere uh, higher than ulcerative colitis, but lower than iliocrones. And recent uh, research has shown, by looking at tens of thousands of uh, patients with IBD, looking at their human genome, that actually, uh, when you look at several hundred of these points along the DNA called single nucleotide polymorphisms, it divides out into three groups, colonic Crohn's, like I had, iliocrone, and ulcerative colitis, not two, the way that people normally think of as, ilio, as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. The Crohn's has actually two substates that are set there in your human genome. Uh, so then I was interested in, well, what about the time variation? Um, and so we have another diagram that looks at the time change uh, uh, of just my microbiome. So now, Charlie, what I've done is I've said, okay, I'm different on an average basis, but what about over time? Remember how much we learned by looking at time series of my biomarkers? Well, what if we look at time series of my microbiome ecology? And this has been really difficult. Uh, only a very few people have had this looked at over time, but each bar is, is my microbiome. It's 100% stack bar graph. So again, the same colors as we had before, the purple are the proteobacteria, the blue are the firmicutes, the red are the bacteriotes, the orange are the actinobacteria. And then this is back in um, just about the end of 2011. This is four months later in April, the four months later in August, 
uh, three months later in November of 2012, those three are in 2012, and then over here we go to uh, January of, of uh, 2013, February, and April. So they're not evenly spaced in time. But what you can see is that there are gigantic changes. Uh, like if we look up at the, the first one, there's this uh, light brown. Um, that's um, a particular bug, Methanobrevibacter smithy, which is not actually a bacteria. It's a uh, different form um, uh, of uh, a different kingdom, basically, uh, of a uh, bug that's similar to bacteria, uh, but different. And, and you can see how it just goes from a very large amount to a very small amount, and then it comes back in a fairly large amount and then uh, back again. Um, and then we can go back and look at other ones. Um, so like here, I like this one. This is the E. coli. Instead of a few tenths of a percent in healthy people, I was 10% E. coli all the way up to here. And then, boom, I went back to essentially to what is healthy, a very, very small amount of E. coli. Uh, and then I had another bloom and then back. And so this is when I was my sickest over here. Um, and we can see that, that, that these uh, blooms and bust uh, for a particular species are characteristic, it looks like, of when you're in the disease state. So the hypothesis that this tells you, and this visualization really is about generating hypothesis. When you see something that's a big change, you think, wow, I wonder if that's a general thing or not. It doesn't prove that it is. It just says maybe we should do some more experiments. So this hypothesis is that uh, when you're healthy, what it means to be healthy is your microbiome is in a local equilibrium uh, of uh, all of its different uh, types of microbes. And it sort of bounces around as you eat different things. It changes a little bit in its composition and so forth, but not much. But when you go into an unhealthy state, you essentially lose that coherence and you get these large jumps in the um, uh, nature of the, of the microbiome's ecology. Uh, and since depending on which bugs are in dominance and their chemical production, they are connected through your nervous system and your hormones and your cytokines and your immune system throughout your body. That, even though it's down in your colon, could all of a sudden be starting off something bad in your brain or your kidneys or your liver or your heart. So uh, that's really the next phase of this uh, research we are very fortunate here at UC San Diego to have one of the top research medical uh, schools in the country. And so between the supercomputer and visualization work and analysis I've been doing and the microbiome that Rob Knight is doing, we're now taking that and we're beginning to have experiments with, say, um, uh, heart disease, cancer, um, uh, you know, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we have a major research group in. Actually, it's one of the dominant diseases in America. Um, diabetes. Uh, and so I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a lot of taking the whole system, human and microbe, plus the environment, <clears throat> and looking at that dynamically. 
and that will be the basis of a new precision, personalized and predictive medicine.